I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We've been using, uh, for this series we've been teaching, titled Reigning in Life. We've been using uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 17 as a text scripture, a beginning point. To tell us about all the wonderful things that we have through our precious Lord and Savior and His sacrifice. Paul is talking about, he actually in Romans chapter 5, he introduces uh, a thought that he carries through in uh, several different letters. But it's the first time that he identifies it, first time in, uh, in the, the, the way that our Bible is arranged, the New Testament is arranged. It's a, a doctrine of God's two men. And he identifies that something happened when Adam sinned because he sinned on behalf of all of mankind. But then conversely, and even more so, something happened on the, on the behalf of all mankind when Jesus did something. So the, with that context, he said in verse 17, For if by one man, speaking of Adam in the Garden of, in, Garden of Eden, if for, uh, by one man's offense, death reigned by one. By Adam's sin, death came upon all of mankind. Much more. Now, I've, I've said this over and over and over again, but I think it bears repetition. I have a hard time running over much more without saying this. And that is, in the Greek language, much more is used not as a comparison. It's not to say, well, just like one thing, then another thing. That's not what this means. Much more means there is no other way to describe this except to make a, make a comparison, but they are so far divergent from one another that they should not even be compared. Much more means what he's about to say is so much greater than what he has just said. The truth is so much more real than what he has just said that it really shouldn't be compared, although you have to make the comparison. That's what much more means. And you ought to do a study sometime in the New Testament about all the much mores. Because every time it means the same thing. It means that which is about to be shared, that which Jesus did for us, that which God has done for us through the work of his son, the sacrifice of Jesus, is so much greater than what he compares to that it really shouldn't even be compared. So for if by one man's offense, Adam's sin, death reigned by one. Well, we know that's true. Death came upon all mankind. Sin and death is in the world because of Adam's transgression. No question about that. That's an absolute truth. But much more, so much more is this true that they really shouldn't be compared together. Much more, they which receive, the word receive means to take hold of or to act on, the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. He's saying that it is even more true that those who take hold of the two things he mentions, abundance of grace and gift of righteousness, we'll mention those a little bit in a minute. He says somebody that takes hold of and acts on those two things, can. it's even more true that they will reign in life than it is that sin passed upon all mankind because of Adam. Now, folks, it's an absolute truth that sin passed upon mankind because of Adam. That's absolute but he's saying it's even more true, it's even more real, it's even more absolute that those which take hold of the abundance of grace and gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Please notice it does not say Jesus will reign, it says you will. He's the source of your reigning, he's the source of your victory, but it's you that reigns, not him. You reign by him, but you do the reigning. So uh, we've, I think we've said this before too, but I believe it bears repetition. 
without question, without argument, if the Bible is true, if this scripture was inspired by the Holy Ghost, if this identifies God's will, then without question, God wants you to reign in life. Can I need to say that again? Because that is such a foreign concept to most of the church. God wants you to reign in life. He doesn't want you to reign in heaven. He'll take care of that. It says he'll reign, you will reign in this life because of your relationship with Jesus. Without dispute, without argument, that's what God wants you to do. So, folks, if you're not doing that, it's not God's fault. Because he wants you to. And, and I, I don't say this casually, but it is the way that most of the church thinks. Most of the church world thinks, well, whatever God wants is what's going to happen. Well, this is what God wants. So it's not up to him wanting it that determines whether or not it's going to happen. He wants it. He provided for it. Well, what does it depend on? It depends on the individual taking hold of and acting on those two things. The abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. That's your job, not his. He can't make you take hold of it. Now, he's not talking to, about to the world. He's not writing this to the, to the unsaved. He's not saying all you have to do is give your heart to Jesus and you'll reign in life. That's not what he's talking about. He's writing this to Christians. He's saying, okay, now that you're born again, it's important for you, if you're going to reign in life, to do these two things. You've got to take hold of and act on the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Yeah, I thought we were already made righteous when we were born again. You are. But there's a big difference in being made righteous and taking hold of it. And you can see that clearly in the modern day church because so much of the church says, well, I know that Jesus died for my sins, but I'm just so unworthy. Well, you can't be righteous and unworthy at the same time. It's impossible. It's either one way or the other. You're going to have to decide for yourself which way it is. Now, the Bible tells you which way it is, but that doesn't seem to be sufficient for a lot of people. The Bible says that you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. It didn't say you'll feel righteous by the blood of Jesus. And I, I guess that's what people are talking about when they say I'm just so unworthy. I guess that means I don't feel righteous and so therefore I must not be in my own thinking or in my own estimation. But the Bible says you've already been made righteous. But there is a taking hold of, there's a receiving, an acting on the gift of righteousness that's foreign to 99.9% of the church world. The few folks that we have seen that have taken hold of these things and reign in life do exploits and miracles in the name of Jesus, whether it's on behalf of others or in their own life. We look at them like, wow, they must have something special from God. Well, okay. What's special about them is they took hold of Romans 5.17, which is available to everybody. So let's talk about this a little bit more this morning. They which receive or take hold of, act on, that means live by. Act on means live according to. Two things, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. What does it mean, the abundance of grace? Well, there's all kinds of definitions for grace. Probably the most uh, uh, common one that's used is unmerited favor. I've got a problem with that definition because everybody here is unmerited rather than favor. And it contributes to people's feeling of unworthiness rather than the knowledge that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. It contributes to our feeling of, well, God probably won't do anything for me because 
he knows what I've done wrong. Rather than focusing on the fact that the favor of God is available to you, which will put you over in every situation. And therefore, people are left by thinking, well, I might make it in the areas that I've done okay, or if, if, if the timing is just right where I haven't sinned recently, then, you know, maybe things will work out all right. And unfortunately, that's why so many Christians' lives are up and down. Because they're trying to get the timing to, to work. Well, it's not about timing, it's about favor. It's not about timing, it's about God's attitude towards you. So I don't like the definition unmerited favor. I like favor. I like talking about favor, but so many people miss out on that because they focus on themselves and their, their, their part of this definition, unmerited favor. I like a definition. It's, it's, I made it up, but I like a lot of things I make up. But it's scripturally accurate. Grace, everything the Bible says Jesus has done for us is by the grace of God, Right? Everything that he has done is by grace. It's not because he's obligated. It's because of grace. The, the, the word grace in the, uh, the New Testament, the Greek word grace, it paints a word picture of someone who is like a king bending over and reaching out to someone that is of lower condition in life. That's what grace is. It's somebody that's not obligated to do something but chooses to do something because of who they are, not because of who the person is that they're doing it for. That's the picture of grace. Well, everything God has done for us is by grace. He's not obligated. He made man. Man messed it up. He could have said, okay, too bad for you. He's not obligated to do anything from that point. He wasn't obligated to send Jesus. Thank God he made that a part of the plan before he ever made the world or man. But everything God does is by his grace or him reaching out toward us from a higher position. Well, how does God reach out toward us? Everything that God has done for us, everything he's reached out toward us, by is through the work of Jesus Christ, right? The Old Testament was about promises of a Messiah to come. The New Testament is about the blessings of the Messiah that has come. So everything that he's done to reach out to us has has been by the work of Jesus, meaning his death, burial, and resurrection, his sacrifice on the cross. So I say it this way. Grace means the finished work of Jesus. Now find me anybody that can disprove that. You can't. It's true. It may not be the theologically accurate or theologically popular definition, but that's exactly what grace is. Grace is the finished work of Jesus. So if we plug in my definition of grace into this verse of Scripture, it's talking about reigning in life is dependent on two things. The first that he mentions is taking hold of or receiving all that the finished work of Jesus entails. All that the finished work of Jesus entails. Now, the reason we say it that way is because it's easy to take part of what Jesus did, part of the work of Jesus on the cross, and reign in certain areas of life, but not reign in others. You've got a great percentage of the church world that has taken what they perceive to be the forgiveness of sins, which, by the way, forgiveness of sins is never spoken of for the unbeliever. The word is used, the translation uses the word, but every time, Old Testament and New Testament, that it speaks of forgiveness of sins or what's translated forgiveness of sins, it really refers to the remission of sins. The remission of sins means the erasure, the doing away with of sin in a person's life. When you got saved, you weren't forgiven of sins. Your sins were wiped out. 
they were remitted. You remember Jesus told the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted. Whosoever sins you're retained, they're retained. Now what's he saying? Is he saying that uh, the 12 have the power to forgive sins or not? Of course not. He's saying that those that receive Jesus have their sins remitted. And the apostles, just like you and I have today, they in their day, us in our day, have the ability to preach the gospel for the remission of sins. That's for the unbeliever. Once your sins are remitted, that's it. They're gone, period. Now, if you're still trying to bring up things to God about things that happened before you got saved, he has no idea what you're talking about because those things have been wiped out. Now, you can hold on to them if you want to, but the Bible says God does away with them. He separates you from them as far as the east is from the west. That's an infinite number. That's an unmeasurable distance. But the Bible talks about forgiveness of sins in the New Testament. For who? For the unsaved? No. You don't confess your sins to get saved. You couldn't remember all your sins that you committed. Forgiveness of sins, as the Bible speaks of, for example, in 1 John 1 verse 9, is about the the believer. If we step outside of the love of God, then we ask forgiveness. And he cleanses us from that unrighteous action. So a lot of the church world accepts what Jesus did regarding sins, but they reject what Jesus did regarding sickness. And so they reign over death in that eternal life is theirs and heaven is their home when they die on this earth. But sickness reigns over their bodies while they're here. In the same manner, some people accept what Jesus did regarding sins. I'm talking about believers, people in the church. Accept what Jesus did regarding sins, but they reject what Jesus did regarding our well-being. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That word peace is translated prosperity throughout the Bible. It's talking about material possessions. It's talking about resources. It's talking about everything that we need here on this earth. That's why the Bible says God will supply all of your need. Why? Because it's part of the covenant work that Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross. It belongs to you just as much as forgiveness of sins. But you got a lot of the church world that don't accept that. They'll accept that they're on the way to heaven, but they figure out they're on their own while they're still here on the earth. So poverty reigns over them instead of them reigning over it. So in both cases, both with sickness and poverty, both examples that we use, you've got people that are saved, genuinely saved. Eternal life is theirs. God loves them completely, entirely. Heaven is their home. Heaven is their destination. Yet they are reigned over by sickness and by lack. Why? Because they don't take hold of the finished work of Jesus in the area of physical healing and in the area of material resources. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can take hold of all the finished work of Jesus and reign over every work of the devil in this earth. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? We're right here in Romans chapter 5, back up to the first part of the chapter. I'll prove to you that he's writing to the church. Verse 1, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he said, Therefore, being justified, King James says being justified. The Greek literally says having been justified. It's past tense. Therefore, having been justified. The people he's talking to have been justified. Now, the word justified means to be made righteous. To be made innocent or clean. And that's righteousness. Therefore, having been justified... 
By faith, we have peace with God. This word peace means well-being. It means you're able to stand before God without any sense of guilt or inferiority. It means God's on your side. Because you've been made righteous by faith in Jesus, that's how righteousness comes, is by faith in Jesus. Because you've been made righteous, you have peace with God. God is on your side. You don't have to try to work something out of him to meet your needs or heal your body. Or have whatever else you need in this life. He's on your side. Because you have been justified. Do you realize that God would be unjust? And what I mean by that is he would be a sinner. If he said, well, you've been made righteous, but I'm not going to do anything else for you. You've been made righteous, but I really don't like you. I'm not on your side. Therefore, I'm not going to heal your body or I'm not going to provide for your material needs. That would make God a sinner because he's got a covenant. And Jesus fulfilled that covenant when he was crucified on the cross, buried and raised again, and now seated at the right hand of God the Father. I hate to say it this way because I don't, it's really a wrong picture, but I want you to get the point. God can't say no. Now the good news is he doesn't want to say no. And that's what this means. Because you've been justified, because you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, no matter how you feel. Notice it didn't say, therefore, because we feel righteous. It says, having been justified, having been made righteous. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. You've got peace with God. God's on your side. Now, there are things he'll talk over with you. Because there may be things that you want that are unscriptural. There may be things that you or I want that are, un- that are selfish rather than according to his plan. For example, I might like Hawaii. Well, I do like Hawaii. And so I may say, God, I want to live in Hawaii. Well, what if he wants me to stay here? And he does. Well, well but, but Lord, I want to live in Hawaii. Well, his plan is for me to be here. Yeah, but Lord, I want to live in Hawaii. We're going to have to talk. God and I are going to have to have some discussions. I'm going to have to come to the understanding that it is better for me to fulfill God's plan for my life than just do whatever in the world I want to do, including living in Hawaii. Do you understand? But that doesn't mean God's against me. God's on my side, so he'll say, by the inward witness, by the inward impression, he'll bring me to the place where I know this is God's plan for my life. Now, if I'm trying to believe God for things, if I'm trying to to access things that are outside of his will, well, that's silly. It's like uh, Brother Hagin said that he was uh, uh, preaching in one church, and the guy came up to him while he was talking to the pastor after a service one morning. He said, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. He said, well, okay, what is it? This is the guy in his church. He said, I want you to give me that, that woman over there. I want you to pray that God will give me that woman over there for a wife. And the pastor looked up and said, that's somebody else's wife. He said, well, I know, but Brother Hagin was teaching that you can have whatever you say. So whatever you prayed in faith about, you could have. And You wonder how people get so stupid. I assume it's with practice. And so it's foolish to think that you're going to get something praying outside the will and the purpose and the plan of God. You can't pray contrary to God's will and expect to get answers. But see, I assume intelligent people already know that. Yet you have some folks, bless their hearts, 
They'll come up with stuff like that. So if you're praying about something and you don't know that it's the will of God, then you're going to have to pray long enough to identify what does God want in my situation? What does God want for me in my life? But you don't have to pray that way about healing because you already know. You don't have to pray that way about your needs being met because you already know. Jesus paid the price for those things. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? Okay, so therefore, having been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2 is what I want you to see. By whom? By Jesus. That we've been, that we've been made righteous through. By Him also we have access by faith into this grace wherewith we stand. And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What I want you to see is very simply the phrase where it says we have access into grace by faith. Now put that together with Romans 5.17, or at least the last part of verse 5.17. Much more they which receive, take hold of, act on, the abundance of grace, the abundance of all that we have through the finished work of Jesus. And the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. How do you take hold of, how do you act on the abundance of all that we have through the finished work of Jesus? By faith. By faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me remind you of a couple of scriptures. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Tells us what the uh, definition of faith. Gives us the definition of faith. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. I like Moffat's translation. It says, the title things for things, the title deed for things we hope for. Faith is the title deed for things that we hope for. Now, what's a title deed? A title deed is a piece of paper. It's something that you have in your hand that gives you information about a possession. Right? If you've got a deed to your house... You don't have to take somebody to the house to prove that you've got it. You just show the title deed to your house, and that's proof that it's yours. Okay? You could prove that to anybody no matter where you are in the world. You could prove that to somebody that's never seen your house, never will see your house. You can prove this house is mine, the house at this address, you know, this lot, this section, whatever the legal description is. This house that the title deed describes is mine. Whether you ever see it or not, it's mine because I've got a title deed to it. Well, that's what faith is. Faith is a title deed. But it's a title deed to things that you can't see. It's not a title deed to natural things. It's a title deed to spiritual things. Because everything that Jesus did was accomplished spiritually. Now, that spiritual possession will turn into material things, realities. But it's a spiritual or unseen possession. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All spiritual blessings are yours. In other words, the finished work of Jesus provides everything you will ever need in life. Whether you yet know you need it or not. Those possessions are yours. And faith is that title deed that says that it's yours. Well, if you can't see something, how are you going to get information about what belongs to you? I mean, you can't just sit around and think, well, maybe it means this. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of people do with the things of God. They imagine that God is a certain way, and so they accept it to be so. I've had some of the strangest ideas about God explained to me. I told you about the, the lady whose husband died. And she wanted me to, the, the family wanted me to do the funeral, and I didn't know the family, didn't know if I wanted to do it or not. I don't like funerals anyway. But I sure don't like funerals for people that are unsaved. What are you going to do? Send up and say, well, Joe here didn't love God, so he's burning in hell right now. 
I'm cold, but I'm not that cold. You know? So I didn't know anything about the family. So I'm talking to her, and, and, and she's coming up with some different ideas about stuff. And I said, well, I was trying to find out, did, were you guys saved? Do you know your husband was saved and stuff? And, and she said, well, we went to church. Oh, okay. That could mean anything or nothing. And so I said, well, what are you, where do you think Joe is right now? She said, well, she said, she said, well, Pastor Mike, she said, here's what I think. I think that when we die, God takes us and makes us a cloud. And we just float through the air for all of eternity. And I, I, folks, I'm, I'm better now. Truly, I'm better now. But I, I couldn't help it. It just jumped out of my mouth. I said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm thinking, here this woman is bereaved, and I'm... Not only have you lost your husband, you're stupid. I said, what in the world makes you think that? She said, well, I don't know. I just always have thought that way. Well, you don't have a title deed to that. You can think whatever you want to, but you don't have a title deed to that. You've got a title deed to the things that belong to you by the finished work of Jesus. Well, how are we going to find out what belongs to us? Romans ten seventeen says this. So then faith, the title deed of what is yours, comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So in other words, faith comes through the knowledge. The word of God gives us knowledge. It gives us information about what we have the title deed for. Now, folks, you can let somebody steal your possession. I can go home this afternoon after church and find out that people have moved into my house and, and, and taken over. And I could just walk away. I could just say, well, this, this seems unfair. Or I could go in my closet and get my gun and clean them out. It's my choice. And my choice is going to be determined by how much I really believe this is mine. And that's exactly what taking hold of your possessions, taking hold of the finished work of Jesus, taking hold of the abundance of grace, that's what that really is all about. It's about you determining, is the Bible true that says, this is mine? Now, the people that will do that will reign in life. Let me add something that the Bible doesn't say. The people that do that will reign in life and be criticized by others that won't. But that's what reigning in life really means. That's what it's about. That's entirely what reigning in life means. It means taking hold of the title deed, the information that comes from the Word of God, to tell us what belongs to us because of what Jesus did. Folks, Jesus did not go to the cross for his own benefit. The Bible says he hated, he despised the shame of the cross. Now think about that. God hated something. Jesus hated the cross. That, that impacts me. That's why we don't have crosses around here. I don't like the cross. I like what it provided for me. But I don't want to look at a cross. We'll put one up on Easter just because people want one. And it stays for about two weeks and that's it. It's gone. I don't want to see crosses. Because the cross was not a place of victory. The cross was a place of defeat. Now, the place of victory was the empty tomb. The, place of, uh, the, the cross was the place where Jesus died. It's a place where he was separated from God. It's a place where he was made death, sin and death for us. 
I don't want to look at a cross. I don't want to wear a cross. And I certainly don't want to have one tattooed on me. I'm not going to tattoo anything, but if I was going to tattoo something, it would be something related to victory. But I think an empty tomb would make an ugly tattoo, so I don't think I'm going to do that either. (laughs) But please see my point here. The resurrection was the place of victory. It's when Jesus was raised from the dead and then seated at the right hand of God. That's the proof of your victory. Not the cross. I never have been able to get that across to people. I've got people that are sitting in this room that are really upset because we don't have crosses. We've got flags all over the place, but we don't have crosses. Faith is the title deed of what belongs to you. And the word of God is the information as to what that title deed entails. It's the description of the property, the spiritual property that is yours. That spiritual property is remission of sins. That spiritual property is healing. That spiritual property is material provision. And you've got a title deed to those and many other things. You've got a title deed as described in the word of God. And the Bible says that the key to reigning in life is for you to access that spiritual property by faith. By faith. Let me show you something. Turn back with me to uh, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 is a great story where Jesus asks the disciples who people say that he is. Beginning in verse 13, when Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Now, he identifies who he is. He says, I'm the son of man. Who do people say I am? And they said, some say that you're John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist has already been beheaded. So they must say that he's come back from the dead. Some say that you're John the Baptist, some Elijah. I don't know how they explain that John the Baptist and Jesus were at the same place at the time that Jesus was baptized, as well as other times. But anyway, he said, some say that you're John the Baptist, and some say you're Elias. Elias is Elijah. Remember, Elijah was caught up by, in the whirlwind in the Old Testament. He saw the chariots of fire and the horsemen thereof, and he disappeared. He doesn't have a burial place. Two people in the Bible, the two people the Bible tells us in the Old Testament died without a physical death, or went to heaven without a physical death. One was Enoch. He walked with God and was not. And Elijah, he was caught up by the chariots and taken to heaven. They did not experience a natural death. Now, folks, let me point something out to you. The Bible says that it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the resurrection. Ecclesiastes says there's a time for everything. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die. You need to understand something. There are certain things that are appointed for you, but by walking according to God's plan, you can postpone that appointment. Some people, most of the church world, thinks you've got an appointed time to die, meaning you're going to live to a certain age and that's it no matter what you do. Well, the Bible says that's not the case. The Bible says there are things you can do that will prolong your life and there are things you do that will shorten your life. Now, you do have an appointment with death. No question about it. But I'm intending to postpone my appointment as long as possible. And if I can postpone it long enough for Jesus to come back, I can cancel it altogether. 
So they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist and other people say you're Elijah. I I don't know why Elijah. He was spoken of in the Old Testament as the forerunner of the Messiah, but John the Baptist fulfilled that role. John the Baptist was operating in the spirit of Elijah, saying there's one coming after me. So he said, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and some say you're uh, Jeremiah, others say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. In other words, people are saying you're anybody except who you are. We'll try to explain you away as anything other than who you really are. And then Jesus said, hmm, well, that's interesting, but who do you say that I am? I guess he asked why other, who other people, what other people said first to see what influence that had on what they thought. So he said, who do you say that I am? Then Peter spoke up and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. You're not John the Baptist. You're not Elijah. You're not Jeremiah. And you're not one of the prophets. You're the Messiah. Christ is a messianic term. You're the Messiah. You're the one that everybody else spoke about. You're the one that the prophets prophesied of. You're the one that John the Baptist said would come. You're the one that Elijah spoke of. You're the one. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Can I ask you a question? Peter and the disciples are seeing and hearing, or well, they're seeing, witnessing the miracles of Jesus that other people have witnessed and heard about. So when the other people are saying he's John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, what are they basing that on? They had to have heard about the miracles of Jesus. I mean, if Jesus didn't do anything, nobody's going to say, oh, that's Elijah, come back from the dead. They've got to have heard about his miracles. They've got to have heard about his healings. They've got to have heard about the, 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 the spectacular things that he's done. No question about it. That's got to be the basis for them saying, well, you're really somebody. We don't know who. Or we've got guesses about Old Testament people, but you're really somebody. Right? So they've at least heard. The people that are saying this have at least heard of the things that Jesus has done. Well, Peter has witnessed the things that Jesus has done. He's seen them firsthand. But you know as well as I do, the things that they've seen, the stories have gone out, so other people have heard the same stories. So the only difference is an eyewitness testimony versus the, the, the miracles that have been proclaimed. And the eyewitness testimony wasn't enough to convince everybody. Because when Jesus in John chapter 6 started talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, the Bible says everybody that's witnessed the miracles took off and left. So much so that he turns to the disciples and says, you going to go too? Peter says, we don't have anywhere else to go. That's a ringing endorsement, huh? It kind of implies that, well, if we had somewhere else to go, we kind of gave up that fishing stuff to follow you. If we had somewhere else to go, maybe. But here he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. I want you to notice that Jesus is saying, you don't believe that because you've seen something. He's saying, you're believing that because God has revealed something to your heart. How many people do you know that that have said something like, well, if I could just see a miracle, then I'd believe? None of those people ever believe when they see a miracle. Because when they see a miracle, they say, well, boy, I just don't understand that. If God would show me something else, then I'd know. Because there's always some way to explain away the supernatural. Always. Folks, I've had visions of Jesus that I wound up doubting. He's there. I talked to him. I saw him. And then afterwards I thought, did I really see him? 
Well, of course you saw him, or I did. No question about it. But there are questions that come to your mind no matter what. And folks, that's the thing about the supernatural. The supernatural is always, always has the capacity to be explained away. You get somebody healed that was crippled. People will say that the doctors did something and it just took a while to work. People come up with all kinds of excuses, all kinds of reasons. And God won't force it on anybody. He'll let you believe whatever you want to believe, right or wrong. Your choice. And that's what's so insignificant about this because Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? It's not about what other people think. It's about what you think. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. The son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. He's saying, Peter, you're not blessed because you're with me. You're blessed because God revealed this to you and you accepted it as truth. Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, not Peter, the the name Peter means little rock, literally, literally it means shifting sand, a small pebble, that moves like sand. Well, you don't build your house on the sand, so he can't be saying that. See, the Catholics use this and say Peter was the rock upon which the church was founded. Oh, dear God, what a mess we're in then. Because he's going to turn around, not not even the end of the chapter, he's going to turn around and Jesus is going to have to rebuke him and say that he's speaking by the devil. No, he's not talking about Peter. He's not talking about anybody. God hadn't built the church on anybody other than Jesus. And that's what he's saying. The rock he's talking about is the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. Upon this rock, the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, I will build my church. Notice Jesus is the one that builds the church. I'm under no pressure whatsoever to build a church. I'm not trying to draw a crowd. I'm not trying to do anything to get people in. I'm just simply teaching the truth. People that want to hear the truth are welcome to come. We put it on TV so that we have an opportunity to reach as many people that want to hear it as possible. And it's growing. TV audience is growing. Church is growing as a result of it. But Jesus' job, it's his job to build the church, not mine. That should be good news. Because I don't know how to build a church. I have people call, interns, Bible school interns, call every year and say, we have to interview people to find out how did you build your church. How do you build a church? I have no idea. I went where God told me to go, found a place to meet, preached the word, still doing the same thing 26 years later. I have no idea how to build a church. I'm glad I'm not responsible for it. Whatever you've got a problem with on our church, it's Jesus' fault. (laughs) No point in trying to change our church. He's building it. Don't even claim to be in charge of it. So Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, folks, what's a gate? A gate is an entrance, right? Where do you put a gate? You're going to drive down the road and just see a gate sitting out there? No, a gate is an opening in a wall. You put a gate there so that people have a chance to get in or out of something that is bordered by a wall. Right? You don't have a gate without a wall. And the reason you got the wall is because you're trying to secure territory. Whether it's your yard, whether it's your office or your property or whatever it is, you're trying to secure some kind of territory. Right? 
You're trying to control access. And the gate is that access. So Jesus said, upon this rock, the knowledge that he's the son of God, he would build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What do gates prevail against? Berkeley's translation says the gates of hell shall not be able to hold out against it. The, the, the picture, the word picture, is that the church is moving forward and pressing on the gates of hell. Now, most Christians' idea is the devil is attacking them. But Jesus said the picture was the church is moving forward and the gates can't hold out. In other words, the church will overtake the devil's territory. The church will break through the devil's boundaries and not the other way around. The gates of hell shall not prevail or hold out against it. The church will break through the gates of the devil's territory. Can you see that's what he's saying? Gates are not offensive weapons. Gates are always the weak points in a wall. So he says, I will build my church upon the knowledge that he's the son of God and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And, verse 19, and I will give you. Based on the knowledge that Jesus is the son of God, and I will give you. Here's a part of the building of the church. The church shall overcome the gates of hell, shall break through the gates of hell, shall occupy Satan's territory. Remember, that's what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, occupy till I come. After he was raised from the dead, he said, occupy till I come. In other words, take territory till I come back. Whose territory? Hell's territory. What is hell's territory? What are the boundaries that the devil is trying to erect or has erected? People. Take back the devil's people. Take back the ground the devil has won. Well, what ground did the devil win? Well, he won... He caused sin and death to rule and reign over the earth. He caused sickness to rule and reign over the earth. He caused poverty to rule and reign over the earth. So if you're going to be a part of the church that's moving forward, that means you're going to have to take back the people, the sin and death, the people he has put in bondage. We're going to win people back to Jesus. We're going to take back the things that that Adam lost, the authority that Adam lost, that Satan has imposed upon mankind since then, Sin, sickness, and poverty. The gates of hell shall not prevail against that. Sickness shall not prevail against the church. Can't hold out against the church. Poverty can't hold out against the church. Death can't hold out against the church. None of the works of Satan can hold out against the church. First John three, first John, yeah, first John three verse eight says, for this purpose the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Because of that, because Jesus knew that the work on the cross, the finished work of the cross and his resurrection would utterly destroy the works of the devil. In other words, destroy their power, not destroy their existence, but destroy the power of the works of the devil. He could say with confidence that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. It can't hold out against the church. Why? Because on the cross, he's going to destroy the power of the devil once and for all. Now, while he was here on the earth, he showed us what that looked like. He healed the sick. He provided for the material needs of his followers. He cleansed the lepers. 
He caused blind eyes to be opened. Everywhere that he went, he cast out devils. Everywhere that he went, he broke the devil's power in individual cases, individual situations. But on the cross, he's going to take care of the power of the devil once and for all for those who will take hold of the finished work of Jesus, which will enable them to reign in life over the things that the devil used to impose upon you, sin, sickness, and and poverty. Is this making any sense? Verse 19, and I will give as a part of building the church, because you are the church. It's not a church building. You and I are the church. We're the body of Christ. And as a part of building the church, here's a, here's a, a, a necessary component. And I will give you. Everybody say give. Here's what God gives you. Now, whether you take hold of it and use it is up to you. But here's what he gives you. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, folks, please notice that the keys of the kingdom of heaven are not the keys to the gates of hell. The keys of the kingdom of heaven don't open hell's gates. The Bible says that when Jesus was raised from the dead, Revelation chapter 1, he told John, I am he that was dead and am alive and am alive forevermore, and I've got the keys of hell and death. He didn't give you the keys of hell and death. That's not what he gives you. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying, I give you keys that unlock hell's gates. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, King James translation says keys of the kingdom. You look that word of up, and it literally means to. He's saying, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, why does he give us the keys to the kingdom of heaven when hell's gates are the things that are trying to hold out against us? Because in order to overcome, you don't need anything of hell's property. You need heaven's power. And the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, unlock heaven's power. God's power, the all spiritual blessings that we've been blessed with in heavenly places in order to do the work of the church, to take back the devil's people and to take back the territory of sickness or take back the territory of healing and um, provision that the devil stole. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Well, that sounds good. Did you know that you have the keys to the kingdom of heaven? What are you doing with them? Folks, that's the question. Every Christian has the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Every one. If they don't, then Jesus lied to us. Is everybody using them? Well, if they're not reigning in life, they can't be using them. Because reigning in life would be taking hold of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't that make sense? So if we're not reigning in life, there's something, there's some aspect, at least some aspect of the keys to the kingdom of heaven that aren't being utilized because it's those who take hold of and act on the abundance of grace, the abundance of the finished work of the Son of God on the cross. The knowledge of what belongs to us as given to us in the Bible, the information that comes through the Word of God that identifies the title deed to what we own. And I will give unto you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Well, what are we supposed to do with those, Jesus? If he just said, if he stopped right there and I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, what does that mean? How would you access heaven? I don't know enough about what's in heaven to know what to access. 
I know there are angels there. Okay, we can get them to help us. That's good. But what's in heaven that we need? Folks, I would submit to you that if that's all it is, if we don't have any additional information, we don't just need the keys to the kingdom of heaven. We need to get off earth and get to the heaven. I mean, wouldn't that be better anyway? Paul said so. He said to to depart and be with Christ is far better. Your best day on earth is it doesn't even compare to your worst day in heaven. Because there are no worse days in heaven. So why do we want the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Don't we just want to go there? I mean, wouldn't God's plan have been better to get us saved and just take us immediately to heaven and, and, and forget all this stuff? That sounds pretty attractive to me. Well, there's got to be something about these keys of the kingdom of heaven that we need to know about and access or utilize for it to be beneficial, right? And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and he's going to tell you how to use them. And whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Notice it starts on earth. It does not say, and whatever God forbids, the word bind means to prohibit or forbid or refuse to allow. He didn't say whatever you forbid or whatever God forbids in heaven shall be forbidden on earth. doesn't say that. It doesn't start with God. You're the initiator, not him. It says whatever you refuse to allow here on the earth, heaven will back you up. Whatever you allow here on the earth, heaven will allow that too. Now, remember, the context is taking back the devil's territory. The context is breaking through the devil's barrier, the gates of hell, the devil's barrier that Jesus said could not hold out against the church. So the implication is, if we're utilizing the keys to the kingdom of heaven, meaning forbidding that which God doesn't intend for us to have, allowing only that which God has provided for, rather than taking a position that, well... Okay, I'll take forgiveness of sins, but, you know, you just never know what God's going to do when it comes to healing. And, and, and it's selfish to pray for God to meet your needs. See, if you allow sickness, heaven will back you up. Heaven will say, well, okay. You don't have to have that, but okay. If you allow lack in your life, then heaven backs up and says, well, all right. If you say so. It comes down to your will exercised. The keys to the kingdom of heaven are all about what you decide you will have or refuse. And that's what taking hold of the abundance of grace is about. How do we know what to take hold of? How do we know what to allow? How do we know what to refuse? Easy. The Bible tells you what belongs to you. The Bible identifies the title deed to your possessions. Now, you can look at that title deed and say, I don't think so. You know, there are theologians that disagree. I heard Pastor so-and-so on TV the other day, and he's a lot more famous than Pastor Mike, and he said it wasn't true. Well, Pastor Mike, I've been to seminary, and they just don't agree. Okay. What you're doing in every one of those situations, what a person is doing is they're saying, I'm going to allow it no matter what the Bible says. And heaven says, okay. 
The angels, the very angels that are sent to help you take hold of what belongs to you, fold their wings and say, okay. But in spite of sickness attacking your body, you can say the word of God says the title deed to healing is mine. So no matter that my body is being attacked with sickness, it's true that healing is mine. I take hold of it in Jesus' name. Then heaven says, get it to them. If in spite of no money in the checkbook or in the bank or more bills than there is money, if we say the word of God says that God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The Bible says the chastisement of my peace was upon Jesus. Therefore, provision, I have the title deed to provision as given me information in the word of God. So, in spite of what it looks like, I take hold of material provision in the name of Jesus. The angels go to work to get it to you. Amen. That's how faith is the evidence of things you can't see. Because the word gives you information to the title deed, to what belongs to you, but it's up to you to take hold of it in spite of what it looks like. In spite of what it looks like. Now, the person that does that, the Bible says, will reign in life. You know how many times the Bible says you can have what you want? John chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. God wants you to get your prayers answered. He wants you to have what you will. Now, again, it goes back to abiding in him. That's relationship. And the word abiding in you, that means you know the will of God because the word of God tells you what the will of God is. It would be foolish for me or you or anybody else to pray contrary to the word. But that would mean the word's not abiding in us. So if you meet the condition of abiding in him, knowing your relationship, and the word abiding in you, then you're going to pray according to what the Bible says belongs to you, according to the title deeds identified in Scripture, and God is glorified by you having things the way you will. If you're uh, being attacked with sickness, what you will is a well body. So you can ask according to your will, and it'll be done unto you. And that's exactly what Jesus did in describing the, the operation of faith in Mark chapter 11. Verse 23 of Mark chapter 11 says, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. In other words, take hold of something other than what he sees. Shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Verse 24 tells us how faith works in prayer. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever you desire, you may desire a well body, you may desire an abundance of provision. What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Now, Pastor Mike, how can I know that, I, that I'm, I'm praying according to the will of God? Because the Bible says the title deed to healing and finances is yours. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe. Faith. Accessing the grace of God, the finished work of Jesus by faith. Believe that you receive them, meaning them, those things that you desire, and you shall have them. Both verses, verse 23 and verse 24, says there's an absolute result, a guaranteed result if you meet the conditions. 
What are those conditions? Taking hold of the finished work of Jesus. And recognizing that your relationship with Jesus and God the Father is established once and for all because you've been made righteous. That's what reigning in life is all about, folks. Now, you'll be criticized for it. Other Christians will say you're arrogant. Let's say, oh, the very idea of you thinking God's going to hear and answer your prayers. Well, he said he would. He said, whatever you ask for in his name, he'd give it to you. Now, again, that depends on relationship and the truth of the word, the title deed. God's not obligated to give you anything outside of what belongs to you through the finished work of Jesus. And, folks, I've got to tell you, there is nothing outside of what belongs to you through the finished work of Jesus. He blessed you with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Not most of them. All. Absolutely all. Much more, they which receive, take hold of, actively take hold of and act on the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. By one Jesus Christ. Shall reign in life. By one Jesus Christ. Pastor Mike, how long are you going to keep teaching on this? I'm going to keep hammering on this till you get it. Because you don't get it the first time you hear it. It, nobody does. Nobody gets it the first time they hear it. Nobody gets it the 50th time they hear it. Nobody gets it the 100th time they hear it. But you start hearing it and hearing it and hearing it over and over and over again, thinking about, wait a minute, the Bible really does say God wants me to reign in life. That means God wants me to have victory over the finances that I'm struggling with now. That means God wants me to have victory over the, over the, the, the healing that I'm struggling to get a hold of now. God wants me to win. The Bible says in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, as servants of God, they would be the head only and above only and not beneath, the head and not the tail. That means win in everything. That means win in every respect, win in every area of life. God doesn't expect you to win in some things and lose in some things as long as you come out ahead. Is that the way you want it for your kids? I want my kids to win in everything they do. And I work behind the scenes to make sure they can. I'll do everything short of cheating. Because cheating's wrong. In most things. I'll do anything to get my kids ahead. Absolutely anything. Well, the Bible says God's a better parent than we are. He has already done everything to get you ahead. That's why you're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. But it's up to us to find out the information from the word so that we realize what the title deed is and what belongs to us because of it. But you do that and act on what the title deed says is yours instead of the things you see and feel around you. You act on what the title deed says is yours and the Bible says you will reign in life. You will reign in life. Not might. Not the odds are in your favor. You will reign in life. Shall reign in life. By one Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege to reign in life. The privilege to walk by faith. Father, I feel so sorry for people that have always had it easy and never had to believe you. Because there's nothing greater than learning the blessedness of walking and living by faith. I thank you, Father, 
that everything Jesus said was true. And he said that he would build his church on the knowledge that he is the son of God. The knowledge of all that he has accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. He furthermore said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Thank you, Father. That means that the gates of hell shall not prevail against me. The gates of hell shall not prevail against any of your people. The gates of hell shall not be able to hold out. Satan in all of his power cannot hold out against even the weakest Christian walking by faith. Father, help us to take back the territory that Satan has tried to build a wall around. You said, Father, that if we would ask, you'd give us the heathen for an inheritance. We ask you. Give us the world. Give us the unsaved. That we might bring them into the kingdom of God. Father, give us back those things that we lost through Adam's fall. I know Jesus has accomplished them for us, Father. They already belong to us. But what I mean is, cause us to realize that they're ours once again. That we're restored and that by faith we can repossess healing. We can repossess material provision. We can repossess and access all that is needed and necessary for this last day work of the church. Father, make it real to us who we are and what belongs to us. We've spoken words, words according to your word, words according to the Bible, words according to what Jesus told us. Father, we ask that you'd make them real. Let them not be men's words. Let them not be my words. Father, speak to people's hearts and cause us to realize what you want us to see, what you want us to know. That we might reign in life and be an example to others. Father, my prayer is not that multitudes of people would come to our church to get saved. My prayer is that multitudes of people would go out from our church to save others. That their lives would be an example of the goodness of God. That their lives would be an example of healing and victory. That their lives would be a magnet for the unsaved. To want to know who is this God that you serve. That does so many wonderful things for you. That's my prayer father. And has been for 26 years. I thank you for hearing. And for making it so. In Jesus precious name. Amen.